Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring Ekin Carr and the art and science of soul travel. My guest, Doug Marmon, is a longtime practitioner of Ekin Carr. He is the author of The Whole Truth, The Spiritual Legacy of Paul Twitchell. Among his other books are It Is What It Is, The Personal Discourses of Rumi, and the Hidden Teachings of Rumi. Also, The Silent Questions, A Spiritual Odyssey, The Spiritual Flow of Life and the Science of Catalysts, Sukhmani, The Secret of Inner Peace, and most recently, Lenses of Perception, A Surprising New Look at the Origin of Life, the Laws of Nature, and Our universe. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now let me switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Doug. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad to be with you, too. Thank you. We'll be talking about Ekin Carr uh, today. It's something that's really fascinated me for decades. And uh, let's begin by your background. You're obviously deeply involved in, in Ekin Carr, and I uh, noticed recently that the uh, Wikipedia refers to you as a clergy uh, in Ekin Carr. The term clergy means holding a position of some form, and I do not hold any positions in the organization. So, uh, no, I'm not currently listed as clergy. Are, are you currently affiliated uh, with the organization? I, I do. I am. I, I have a membership, and uh, I have lots of friends, of course. Um, I so yes, in that regard, yes. And you worked in the office of the organization going back for many years. Yes, in the early days. That's true. Yep, I did. I I, I started working there in 1973. Did a couple years was gone for a year and then came back and did a couple more years in the office. Let's talk about what what it means to, to t refer to soul travel. It could be some people might think of it like remote viewing or other people might think of it like astral travel. How How is it defined within Ekinkar? So it, there's not a lot of time spent on defining it because it's really an experience it's something to experience, not to understand with the mind uh, in terms of definitions. So it's not, it's not about the definition, it's about the experience. But Paul Twitchell did get often, uh, things got confused in the early days when Paul Twitchell started using the term. So he would mm -hmm. be careful to try and talk about the differences. And for example, astral projection was a very common uh confusion with soul travel. And there's, and there's a very big difference between that. Uh, it, and a person who experiences astral projection, it, and of course it does vary a lot, but there's often a feeling of a uh, silver cord attaching your uh, abdomen or your, you know, the center of your stomach to the body you're in 
as you're projecting. You can feel it tugging at you sometimes in your physical body. Um, and you definitely feel like you're in a body and you're in a world and you're traveling someplace. And when you're there, you're like all there. Uh, so it's a very much a feeling of projecting. Uh, it, that The word projection is very good. Soul travel is really not projection. One doesn't actually project to the astral plane or one just expands one's consciousness to that other dimension, you might say. And there are a number of dimensions. And so it's not limited to the astral plane. One can go far beyond that. One can spend time in the physical world um, and see the other side, the, side the, the, the physical world from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Um, so the experience of soul travel does give you a, a feeling of being in more than one state of consciousness at the same time. It's very, quite common. And in the early days, Paul Twitchell called it bilocation, being in two places at the same time. Uh, and, there, and, and so that it usually when that experience happens, it'll be, uh, you're in a heightened state of inner awareness and at the same time, oh, aware of the physical body and what you might be doing. So you can actually be speaking, you can actually be uh, doing some kind of work, you can be talking with another person, and some this inner awareness opens up and one moves into that state of awareness at the same time. Now, I'm under the impression that, like any other religious organization, uh, or many others at least, the goal here is ultimately for the soul to if not merge with God, get very close. So, I, you know, one of the things that uh, we would say, not so much merging with God, uh, or the idea of being at one with God, that is that is an experience one experiences in, we would say, the lower worlds, not the higher spiritual worlds. Uh, for example, at, on the causal plane, one comes to that experience very strongly, of, of there being a God in that world and one feeling as if one, uh, were wanted to be a part of it and are in being invited in a sense to be a part of it. And that's what you might call the mind, universal mind or the cosmic consciousness experience, that sort of a thing. But, uh, soul travel actually can take you far beyond that experience. And generally, as you get into the higher worlds, uh, one comes more back to one's own individuality, the sense of the individual, not in terms of, uh, in the place of God, but in, so, and more as a co-worker with God or more, uh, having some function with God. That, uh, it sort of reminds me of the ancient, uh, Sampkya philosophy of India, which was in effect dualistic. It wasn't the, uh, non-dual philosophy of all is one. Right, right. That's true, and and I think it is closer in that regard. Yes, uh, where some of the bigger one of the things you see in a number of religions is the uh, sometimes the dualism gets to the point where one wants to get beyond the physical. Their physical is considered bad or pulling one down, or uh, and one wants to withdraw from the physical and that sort of thing. But in in uh, my experience, the real benefit of soul travel and expanding one's consciousness like that is it 
illuminates everything in the physical life as well. So physical life becomes much more imbued with inner meaning. Uh, and it's not so, something to be got, gotten rid of or something to be rejected or rising above, but actually seeing and living uh, as a part of, uh, in the inner at the same time in the outer. Now, I uh, remember actually back in about 1965 when Paul Twitchell founded Ekinkar. And as I recall at the time, it, it sort of put me off because it was housed in Las Vegas, Nevada. And this was long before I ever moved to Las Vegas. So I probably had an attitude about it. And it was set up as a for-profit corporation. In the beginning, it was. So that actually happened, I think it was in 1970 when they changed that over. Yeah. And Paul really wasn't eager to do that. He, he got pressured into it by the, the other members of the board that he had there. They wanted to be able to get their uh, donations to be tax deductible. He always felt Ekinkar should be on its own and making its own way. But uh, yeah. he went along with that. But the reason it got established in, in Las Vegas he actually didn't live there, but he had somebody who was helping uh, doing the book distribution and getting his discourses out, and and she was located in Las Vegas and so set up the business there. Well, I don't uh, mean to uh, carry an attitude about it. I think uh, many people have had this attitude because Ekinkar has had had a, a reputation as a cult. And you, in in your book, The Whole Truth, spent a lot of time uh, really um, arguing against that interpretation. Yeah, well, it's certainly something that a lot of Ekis think is funny that uh, people would think of it the way. But there is obviously, there like any group, any group that spends time, uh, say, more time talking amongst themselves than they do with others, it can sound like it's an in-group of some kind. But I have to say that in the early days when I got involved, there was very little of that. And what to me that struck me about it was uh, people felt very much individual spirit. And that was exactly what Paul Twitchell, when he started, it was he himself was quite a character and encouraged that uh, feeling in, amongst his uh, people. He didn't want anybody like listening to him and obeying him. In fact, he did things to make it difficult for them to even know sometimes whether he was saying the truth or not, just to get him them to make sure uh, they were thinking on their own, really thinking for them. It became a very fast-growing organization. I understand it really outperformed in terms of numbers. Other religious, new religions of, of that era, like the Hare Krishna movement and so on, that got a lot of attention. And uh, today, I gather, there are Ekinkar centers in a 100 countries. Yeah, all over the world. Yeah, yes. And I'm under the impression that what really draws people into it is this notion of soul travel, that it's not just about uh, chanting or meditating. It's, it's about going someplace inwardly. Yeah, inner, I would say active inner experiences, um, and sometimes directly related with your outer experiences at the same time. Um, and it, it, you know, what, what draws people today is different than it was in the early days. I think it's, uh, uh, and it changes over time. But I think what I've seen 
what it means the most significantly to somebody, it's when they themselves already had inner experiences. They've tried to talk to the, with their friends or family about it. They don't understand. And they finally, when they find someone who can understand and relate to what they've experienced and say, look, you're normal. This is okay. And you can actually go further with your experiences if you want to. That, that really is meaning, deeply meaningful to those people. Well, as a parapsychologist, I know that, uh, and this is true of everybody I know in parapsychology, whenever we speak in public, people come up to us typically uh, and begin their remarks with uh, by saying, you know, I've never told anybody else before about this, but I want to uh, tell you. Now, Parapsychology is a research discipline. Ekankar is, you could call it a religion or a practical philosophy, but uh, most importantly, it, there's a methodology involved. Uh, I understand, for example, that the use of sound and chanting is very important. Yeah, there are lots of different techniques, however, and chanting is not always, well, it's, just, it's just one of many, let's put it that way. Um, and you can use uh, the sound, uh, certain sounds that help attune you to something moving within you, a uh, deep, and it pulls you, it can pull you uh, into a, a higher experience. But so can a number of other things. It's just uh, quite uh, uh, widespread how many types of experiences can trigger for someone uh, to start to feel the inner currents and then learning how to go with them. The inner current, that's a, a, an interesting phrase. I, I get the impression by that, that, that could be a sound vibration or maybe some sort of super sensible uh, intuition or feeling. You, you know, a lot of people will define this differently. But when, pe when I, the term sound current is something that's often used. But to me, it comes closer to like a good poem. And the feeling that you get with a good poem and it moves you in your state of consciousness. That's to me what the sound current is more like, uh, than it actually. Now, in some of these other teachings, like from India, they do actually spend a lot of time on specific sounds. Um, and, and sometimes that, it, that's one of the practices you can do. Uh, but it's not by, by no means the only one. I understand, for example, many people consider dream work as an example of soul travel. It, you can often have very strong inner experiences in dreams. Uh, dreams play a very important part of the life of someone on the path of ek, yes. And you've used that term ek. Could you define that? It's usually probably best understood to mean another word for spirit. Um, so the idea is that the meaning of the word spirit comes with connotations from other religions. And so Paul Twitchin, when he came out with, used the term ek. And it's usually E-C-K, but sometimes it's also E-K. And uh, that has actually been used in previous times. Uh, so you can find the term ek actually means the one in, uh, in for example, the Sikh religion. Back in the early days when I uh, first practiced kundalini yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan, who was a Sikh, uh, there were various chants and the phrase Ekankar would appear in those chants. So I have associated Ekankar as having some 
uh, influence from the Sikh religion. And in your book, you go into some detail as to Paul Twitchell's teachers. He had quite a few teachers. Uh, one of them was a Sikh, Kirpal Singh. Yes. And, uh, the, 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 th if you, one of the things that Paul Twitchell talked about when he talked about Ekankar was that it's not something he made up or it's not something, it's something that's been around for a long time. And it's, it's taken the form of many different religions in the past. Um, but it's also, but it's also, it's very clearly distinctly based upon experiences, not beliefs. It's not a belief structure system. It's an experiential system. So the people who go through by the thousands of, of this program, uh, are, are in it because they want to have these experiences or they already are having these experiences and, and want a, uh, some structure for it, for that. Especially in the early days, there was no interest in the structure. There was just interest in making connection, a deeper spiritual connection. In fact, the teaching when it first started with Paul Twitchell, it was an independent study. Uh, he wrote uh, discourses that people got in the mail and they studied on their own and inwardly made their connections inwardly. And only later after that did he offer what they called satsangs, where people could get together and study in groups. It was sort of set up like a mail-order distant education business uh, initially. And I gather uh, from your work that Paul Twitchell also had uh, a background in uh, the early days of Dianetics and Scientology, working closely with L. Ron Hubbard, becoming a Dianetic clear and, and perhaps even beyond and rising rather high in that organization. Yeah. He got involved with a lot of different organizations and, and uh, what he found out about when Dianetics first came out, he got interested in it. Because there was some mention there about out-of-body experiences. And that's why he got interested in working with, uh, kind of helping out uh, uh, L. Ron Harbord. Uh, he got more detached from it as the organization of Scientology went on. Uh, but uh, yes, in the early days, he was, he was a part of that. It was also, at the same time, in that same time frame, involved with other spiritual teachers and other spiritual organizations at the same time. So I suppose it's fair to say that uh, uh, being the founder of Ekankar, uh, really the uh, Ekankar, I, I don't even know if calling it a religion is the right word, but the tradition of Ekankar uh, could be considered uh, a fusion of the uh, interests uh, and experiences of Paul Twitchell. That is, has been characterized that way, but I don't, I don't see it that way myself, and he sp certainly never spoke of it that way. Um, I think of it, it's better, uh, understood in the way Jaldan Rumi, the Sufi poet, put it. And, and he put it that what he was teaching was not religion. It was the roots of the roots of the roots of religion. In other words, it's the source behind religion. And in that sense, it's connected to all religions of different types, but it's the source, the, the original source. You yourself have written a couple of books about Rumi, so there's some connection there with Sufism. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and uh, I first found out about Rumi reading Paul Twitchell's books, and he considered him Rumi an Ek master. Uh, and so I 
you know, hunted him down and started reading about it. And it was amazing to me how much is hidden there in his poetry. I also have the impression, Doug, that even though it is about individual experience, and I'm sure that means making allowances for uh, individuals having unique experiences, there there's still something of a cosmology, levels of initiation, and uh, the idea of even that there is such a thing as an Eckmaster and a lineage of Eckmasters implies some sort of a a, a cosmology. Yes, yes. Uh, however, I have to say that the cosmology doesn't take the form that it does in other teachings, uh, because it's really one that has, it's first and foremost something one has to gain from one's own experience. And uh, there's a lot of people now, in the early days there wasn't as much available, but now when people uh, uh, start studying Ekankar, they'll see different charts or the the world god world's chart or something like this and start to look at that as if it exists that way and really in the early days one had to start learning these things just through personal experience and i think that gives you a more accurate picture because it takes a different form for everyone if i think about maps of the soul maps of the inner reality you've got the tarot cards you've got astrology you've got uh all all sorts of uh, explorations in science fiction and in the movies and in the Gnostic uh, traditions and and so on. Then you have Kabbalah with the Tree of Life diagrams. So there are many many different maps, uh, and they seem to be largely cultural. Yes, exactly, and that's what I think. The, for me, what's different about this is it's not cultural. The experiences, you can relate, I can relate to all those different teachings. I can relate to their experiences, but I relate to it from my own experience and my own map, you might say, of, of the inner worlds. And I can see from that that these, some of these teachings go so far and stop. Some don't go as far as I was interested, have been interested in going. And, and so it, one can see that a certain sort of wisdom comes from a certain plane on the inner worlds, a certain dimension on the inner worlds. Uh, and, and you get to know that and you can go there and you can see how it fits there. But then you can go to another state of consciousness and it seems to be almost the opposite. It almost contradicts in some ways the wisdom from, so you can see contradictions of wisdom in a sense. I've often uh, suspected that it works that way, that each level is sort of the opposite of the one before, and you keep going through like layers of the onion. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And as you do, you, you gain a de- change a, a perception of yourself. What, who am I? What is soul? What is the meaning of being? And that sort of thing. It, you not only change in the dimensions you're in, uh, but in the way you see yourself and your role in the, in the world. I'm under the impression that uh, Paul Twitchell talked about inner guides, people who taught him on the inner planes as, as well, that there are guides and teachers there that, that, that you contact, that that's an important part of the process. Yeah, I, I, I think he, he felt it was such a a valuable thing for him that everybody should see how valuable it is. And I agree. 
uh, because th- there's nothing better than being able to meet some really, truly incredible spiritual teacher in the inner worlds and see the wisdom that they they see and they can share. It just opens new doors beyond our own understanding. And that, to me, is where the value is, is not to reinforce what you know to make you feel more confident that you are so smart about something, but actually to expand beyond our own understanding. Now, the way you're describing it to me, it makes it sound as if the practitioners of Ekankar are kind of what I would call psychonauts, uh, explorers of, of a vast continent of, of the mind, and uh, perhaps even mapping out all the different territories uh, that are there. Would you say that's an accurate reflection? Well, it is for me. Now, I have to say that there's all kinds of people involved in Ekankar, and I, I'm not sure everybody agrees with that. Uh, for some people, more it's more the social organization is more important. But for me, and this is what I think was important to Paul Twitchell when he first brought it out, it is that exactly. In fact, he, in fact, he wrote a book called The Far Country, which is exactly about exploring these different worlds and, and like mapping them out in a sense. And he gives credit to the many in the past you know, centuries who have brought out pieces of that map. I know uh, it, it's kind of ironic. Uh, the Spiritual Counterfeits Project, uh, you and I had some exchange about this many years ago, uh, back in, I think, the late 70s, early 80s, wrote a, a piece highly critical of Ekankar, basically calling it uh, a spiritual counterfeit. And ironically, uh, within a couple of issues of that magazine, they they interviewed me, and I had a completely different reaction from them. That e- even though I they are, I presume, a Christian fundamentalist organization, and I am not, uh, and have never been in any way affiliated with anything of of that sort. But I felt they treated me quite fairly, and uh, I'm under the impression that. In your work, you've endeavored to establish dialogues with people all across the spectrum that, that you see a great value in that. Yes. I think dialogue is such a missing art these days. And, and there's so much more truth, meaning inner truth, that comes out with dialogue and relating to other people and really listening, really listening to what they're saying. And Because I, I find you can learn from everyone. Everyone has something worth learning from. Uh, so I think the dialogue is really valuable, yes. Now, an- another thing that you wrote about that I found really fascinating is that uh, you have had a close personal relationship with Harold Klemp, who is currently and has been for some time now the uh, head of Ekankar and is regarded as uh, the living Ekmaster, and I guess another term that's used is the Mahanta, which... Uh, it sounds like, you know, a very elevated position. I'm not quite sure what it means. Yes, I did get to know uh, Harold very closely uh, when I first started working at the Ekankar office in 73. Actually, he showed up in 74. He started working there. We became uh, close friends. And I really I looked up to him. Is He had a, a sense of awareness that was amazing to me. But he was also a very quiet person. He is not um, ostentatious in any way. He did 
he did a lot of things in the background with people, people even knowing what he was doing. I always admired that. And at one point you wrote about him in your book that early on you sensed that he would rise to this position within Ekinkar, and you described him as a God-realized person. You know, it was one of those things where it happened just shortly after I had uh, started studying Ekinkar seriously. And so I, I realized how little I knew, but this inner understanding came to me. It was just an inner awareness that I didn't know. I tried to test it. I tried to find, okay, th why, was, why was I getting this so strongly? And so, but over time, it became clearer and clearer to me that uh, there was something there. Uh, and I didn't know if it would turn out to be true, but it was just strong at the time. So when it did, when he ended up becoming uh, the master uh, of, in Ekankar, I, I was not surprised at all, but I was surprised at how many others were surprised. <laughs> you know, we had an interesting exchange uh, after after our brief introductory meeting in which uh, you were questioning me quite a bit about Ted Owens in my book, The PK Man. And then afterwards, after we uh, hung up uh, from our short talk, you indicated to me in an email that you felt some... Uh, Contact from, I think what you were referring to were the, the ostensible space intelligences that Ted Owens claimed he was working with. Yes. Yes, I did. And I kind of questioned you. I was grilling you a little bit because <laughs> I was curious. I wanted to get a sense from you what, what Ted Owens was connected to. Not so much him, but what was it that he was connected to and, uh, to produce those kinds of very dramatic uh, demonstrations that he was doing. And so I started getting that when I was yeah. talking to you. And then, but later on, it came through very strongly. And I felt that I definitely did have the experience of what Ted Owens called the space intelligence. Yeah. And it was quite a strong experience, not just an inner experience, although it was pull, it pulled me out of my body inwardly, but it also felt strong physically which surprised me because usually you don't see that so much. And inner experience is often just on the inner. Um, but this came through very strong physically, showing the influence they had in the physical world. Um, and one of the impressions I got, which is something you said Ted Owens often had this, when people didn't take him right, was, oh, this person has to learn a lesson. And he felt his place to teach him. And I got that same impression that the that group wanted felt like I had a lesson to learn and 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 so they began to use that power on the uh the, where they had it coming down into the physical and affecting me physical physically to show me how much power they had in a sense and that was the like the first start of it but knowing where they were, that was coming from the inner, I understood and could relate to them. I thought, okay, perhaps this is a lesson for both of us. So let's, let's join this together. Let's turn this into something positive. And I raised my consciousness to where they were coming from, which was not the astral plane as I originally thought. It was actually, they were coming from the causal plane. And, when they got the impression, you'll, you'll find this interesting. When they got the impression, I wasn't getting the message. 
that they wanted to get, want me to get. They started doing some other things. They started, I started getting thoughts coming into my, my, my mind that were not my thoughts, but knowing that they were not my thoughts, I saw where they were coming from. They were coming from them. So I was able to reflect them back. And then they set something up and I got this impression. Now something's going to happen to me. Something, something's going to happen in my life to teach me this lesson. And I saw that, okay, they were doing this. They were putting something into the future. And you had mentioned in your book about them using time windows. I said, oh, that's what they're doing. They're using time windows. I thought it was really fascinating. So I raised up to the state where they were doing it, could see how they were doing it, and I realized I can do this in reverse. I can use those same windows to, in a sense, reverse what they're doing and turn it into a positive rather than this downward negative energy, in a sense, that they were uh, using. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm, I can even go beyond that. Let's go beyond the causal plane. And I went to the mental plane above that. And there you can cover all the time windows at one time and, and all of them just so they're all in a sense turned into something positive. And that was a surprise to them. And they at that point changed their attitude. Uh, which I was glad to see. And, you know, I also admitted to them, I said, well, I did learn from you that there was more behind what you're saying than I originally thought. So this is a kind of a way you get an inner experience. But one of the things that came to me was there was a connection between what they were doing and these forces that sometimes come through into the physical and produce a very dramatic change in consciousness. Um, and they were doing that under the auspices of the causal plane and the, and the, and the leader of the world God there. So they were doing it for a purpose. There was a purpose behind why they were doing this. And it went deeper than I thought. So that was, I considered a positive experience. Did you start to feel physical effects from what they were doing? Yes, when they were doing it, absolutely. Now, what I didn't tell you is that the next day they visited again. In the morning, I woke up and they were there again. But this time they didn't, they were there just in a sense show me that they can do positive things. And in a sense, I really felt uh, it was uh, more, a lot more respectful the way they're acting. Mm -hmm. And it was a really nice thing. But one of the things that I did show, and you'll, I think you'll find this interesting. One of the questions I had is, well, how can they, have such a physical effect. If they're on the inner worlds, because there is generally what happens on the inner worlds has an inner effect to beings here, but not so much an outer effect. And they clearly were happy, able to manifest things physically, have a physical presence. And they did that because they had a huge, huge number of beings there all working together. And so it was kind of like a hive consciousness. Like all these, and that was what you need on the inner world to have a strong enough influence in the physical world. And that's the way they were able to do that. To summarize what you've told me, after having had a short 10-minute conversation with me about the space intelligences and Ted Owens and my research, you actually entered into a, a state of consciousness where you were communicating with what 
you take to be the very same space intelligences. It definitely felt the same. And because I have to assume of your decades of experience with Ekankar and soul travel, uh, this whole experience ultimately seemed pretty natural to you. You understood right away how to negotiate yourself through an interaction with these strange, powerful beings. Yes. I've had numerous experiences, all this was quite unique. Uh, and those experiences did prepare me. One of the things that I've learned, the lessons you can learn on the causal plane, is that no matter how powerful the being may be, you can talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And that changes the whole dynamic. Um, and because then they're not more powerful. But for most people in the physical world who aren't experienced with that, it's just overwhelming. It's just, it can wipe out their own awareness of themselves, even to the point, overpower their thoughts. But once you're, and this is the whole point to me of the path of Ek, is spiritual freedom. That one can have freedom no matter what forces one's facing in the outer or in the inner. One always has this sense of themselves that can, that is not touched by, that it rises above, it can rise above any of these experiences. I understand that at one time, uh, the instructions were sent out by one of the Eckmasters, I forget which one, having to do with uh, how, what do you do uh, when you encounter dark uh, demonic forces in these soul travel experiences? How do you protect yourself from that? Right. It, it's an important method, and it's not just, of course, Eckenkar that teaches this. Other teachings that are experience-based have often, they often cover the same subjects. And this is where one can use different chants or one can use the, the calling, the presence of a higher teacher to be there at one's side. But eventually one reaches the point where one knows, has confidence in their own abilities to deal with these things. And so it just becomes natural. Uh, and it's amazing to see the, that these beings like they can create such forces, but they can also be part of something positive at the same time. So there's, there's two sides of it. Doug, Marmon, uh, this has been a fascinating exploration. It's uh, really interesting to me to talk to somebody uh, with such depth of experience in uh, this soul travel work. And I have to say, it, it seems to me as a parapsychologist that there could very well be uh, opportunities for experienced Ekinkar soul travelers to participate in uh, empirical research of this phenomena. Yeah, yeah, and I think some have actually, uh, although I think most uh, don't do that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, I've seen some, I've had some interest in seeing some of the things that go on with some of the experiments, but I do know that uh, that it's very difficult to uh, test this with science. I'm, I have enough interest in science to know that science is about the repeatable. And what is repeatable? And the real spiritual experiences, the best spiritual experiences are for that moment. And so it's not something easily fit into the realm of science. 
it's not. I suppose it's distinct, for example, from remote viewing, which also had a, a kind of Scientology connection, as does Ekin Carr. So I, I imagine there might be some overlap that soul travelers uh, and remote viewers share some things in common. Yes, there definitely are. I've, I've uh, enjoyed reading the books on the re remote viewing experiences that uh, experiments that were done, and I can relate to a lot of it. Uh, their awarenesses tend to be, I'd say, more advanced in the physical side of mm -hmm. things, using it for gaining physical knowledge of, uh, say, other countries, what they're doing in other countries, or of other uh, places at the same time. And I've had those, plenty of those experiences to know the value of it. But I have to say my uh, experiences tend to be more in the spiritual. Well, it does seem to me that there's a kind of intermediary uh, realm between the spiritual and the physical. I think of it maybe as the archetypal realm, or you might, uh, well, we were talking about the space intelligences and this whole realm of uh, uh, non-physical beings. Uh, as well, uh, it's something I think we're beginning to explore. Uh, people are beginning to develop uh, guidelines and uh, maps that are maybe even better than uh, the ones we've inherited uh, through world culture. You mean, are you talking about physical maps? No, I'm talking about maps of inner reality. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, to me, very fascinating. Uh, you know, one of the things, one of my first experiences that I had when I started reading a book by Paul Twitchell was I, when I started realizing he was saying, you can do this yourself. You can do these soul travel experiences. I had had a number of out of body experiences before then, but he said you could do it at will under your control. So I sat down and did this exercise, which he called the easy way. And I found myself immediately out of my body and I thought, well, I can go anywhere now. And I went to see a friend of mine who I wanted to see what he was doing at that time. And I was, at the time, I was 19 years old. Uh, so I went to him and I saw that he was in a car, uh, driving in his car with another friend. And so I sat in the back seat to hear what they were saying. So I could get some evidence I could take back with me, right? And I heard that they were talking about, I saw the road they were on, where they were going, and then I came back and my experience then changed into a very different sort of experience after that. So I, as soon as I got back uh, and got out of the experience, I called him up. No answer, of course. So I waited till later in the day, I called again, and he did answer. And he said, yes, he was with the friend in the car on that road going exactly where we were. And I said, well, I remember you said this and this and that. And he said, well, one of the things he remembered, the other thing he did not remember. Hmm. But one of the, so I thought, okay, there is physical reality to this. There's a val validation of this experience. But at the same time, I could see that I was seeing things in the state I was that was not all physical. There was another part I was seeing. It was, it looked different. It felt different. Um, and that was seeing it through the astral eyes, you might say. Um, and it was quite different. So I spent a lot of time exploring that more after that. As I say, it seems as if the potential for uh, exploring inner realms uh, in, in a way that uh, 
demonstrates that this is not just some fantasy, that Paul Twitchell was more than just a creative science fiction writer, for example, and, and the other uh, people of your tradition and similar traditions, that, that there's something out there that, uh, even though it's non-physical, has a level of objectivity to it. Yes, it, it, it's a different kind of objectivity, uh, but it is, you're right, it's, it's a universal reality. It's not just a personal subjective experience. Um, and, I, and I have spent my time, I wrote a book called The Silent Questions, in which I actually mapped out my experiences starting from the physical to the astral and the causal, the mental and the soul planes, and going beyond that. And I actually have chapters for each of those where I describe my experiences and show how different they are from one state to the next. Well, and, and also you've written a book on uh, uh, lenses of perception, which deals with quantum physics, the origin of life and the universe. So you are making an effort to integrate your spiritual insights with uh, contemporary scientific developments. Yes, I've always had a strong interest in science. And to me, uh, I, I always, I, I got into this discussion with another uh, engineer when I was work, we were working together at one point. And, uh, he, I got this, I said, I told him that, that I wondered if it was materiality that came first or was it consciousness that came first? Which one comes first in the creation of the world, right? He took the standpoint, oh, it's materiality. But he was a very, very smart guy. So I said, well, let's see if we can find anything that could determine once and for all, which one it is. And so we had this kind of dialogue back and forth. And every time he came up with something, I could show how there could be an inner aspect to that. And every time I came up with an inner aspect, he could show how there was an outer aspect. And at one time I thought, maybe there's just, you'll never be able to prove one way or the other. But when I started exploring quantum physics, it came to me that here it was, this was the crossover. And it made a big difference, and I could show. So that's why I spent time with that and exploring that. Well, I'm looking forward to having more discussions with you about that book in the future, Doug. Thank you so much for being with me. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this discussion, too. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.